Today, of course, is Mother's Day, and um, it has always been a special day uh, in my family growing up. Uh, it's an especially special day, I suppose, for the states of Pennsylvania and West Virginia. Mother's Day, in its present form, dates from 1907, and it involves a woman by the name of Anna Jarvis. Uh, she lived in Philadelphia and sent some carnations uh, to her home church in Grafton, West Virginia, the Methodist church there, in memory of her mother who had died two years before. Uh, it involved, Anna did, she must have been quite an uh, activist. She involved John Watermaker, uh, the great merchant of Philadelphia, and when he got behind it, uh, it helped promote Mother's Day. And the next year, it was observed in New York. The day has its roots uh, much earlier, and I'll mention that at the end. We honor our mothers for their care and wisdom, their sacrifice and love, their faith and purity. Uh, what, is, what is indeed... Um, uh, a wonderful phrase, I believe, and captures uh, the way we think of our mothers. The hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Written by a man by the name of Wallace. I read a joke recently about uh, uh, two mothers. And uh, one mother said to the first mother, how do you get a sleepy son up in the morning. And Mother Two said, just put a cat in the bed. And the first mother said again, well, how in the world would that help? She says, my son sleeps with the dog. <laughs> now that'll wake you up. But I'm not going to preach the rest of my sermon on Mother's Day because this is another day that's important in the life of the church. It's Ascension Sunday. Last Thursday was Ascension Day. This is Ascension Sunday. Now, I try to preach the church calendar around Christmas and Easter, and I'll preach next Sunday on Pentecost. Hope you're here. And then following that, I'll preach on the Trinity, and then I'll be finished, and I'll just flee for, float around whatever... Uh, I can find a topic from there on out. But I like to stick with the church calendar around Christmas and Easter. It's important. Because we are treating or dealing with the great doctrines of the faith. You say, Pastor, I, I, I don't, I'm not an intellectual. I don't care about doctrine. I just want a, some practical advice. Well, let me say, before the practical advice can really be efficacious in your life. You must have a framework, understanding, a worldview out of which it works. You may be as strong as a bear, but if you don't know how to use your strength and how to direct it, it's not helpful. You may be as swift as a deer, but if you're running in the wrong direction, things are only getting worse. We need doctrine. We need to have our minds shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ and the great events of Scripture. And so today, I'm preaching on the Ascension. 
following the resurrection and over the space of approximately 40 days, Jesus appeared to his disciples and he instructed them in the things pertaining to his kingdom. He also prepared them to receive the Holy Spirit. And therefore, in many ways, that will be the birth of the New Testament church. And this church was to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But before the Pentecost day and before the church was birthed, he says, I must ascend and go to my father. And then outside the city of Jerusalem, close to Bethany, he met with his disciples. He raised his hands, and that's why I raised my hands at the benediction. He raised his hands and he blessed the people. And then he was taken bodily before their eyes up into heaven and a cloud enveloped him. And the scripture says in Acts 1 that the same way you have seen me go, you will see me come again. And the church then is that community that lives between Ascension, Pentecost, and the second coming of Christ. We call this whole episode then outside of the city of Jerusalem when he finished his earthly appearances to his disciples, the Ascension. In many ways, the ascension of Jesus is really underplayed, if you will, in our church life. In the modern period in particular, I don't hear sermons on the ascension. Do you? I don't hear many. I preach one at least every year because I want to keep it before you. And there may be good reason for that because, in a sense, even in the New Testament, sometimes the ascension is collapsed into the resurrection. But if you read clearly Luke and Paul, they focus on it more than any other New Testament writers. And when they focus on the ascension, they're focusing on the power of God in the name of Jesus. For this same spirit which raised Jesus from the dead, our text says, is now at work in you. And it really becomes efficacious when he ascended on high and sends the Holy Spirit. And so let us take a look at the text, which is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Speaking of God's power, our text says this, He, that is God, raised him, Jesus, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. This is called the session of Jesus. He ascended on high and now he sits at the right hand of the Father, what does that mean, that right hand? The right hand is your power. It represents that Jesus reigns in power. Now, surely, it's hard to picture this kind of scene because this is otherworldly in a sense. It's in a different realm, a different dimension. But he sits on high and the Trinity reigns. But God has revealed himself as Trinity, particularly through his son in his body. And he bodily ascended to the Father. Now, what the ascension is, is very simply this. It is the exaltation of Jesus Christ in the scriptures. Sometimes it is said that in the resurrection is exalted. But if you want a formal period, 
or event, it is when Jesus ascends on high and sits at the right hand of the Father. He is said to be exalted. He is Lord. He has a name which is above every name. Or a title, as it says in our text. You can translate that word name or title. He has a name or a title that is above every name. And in another place, it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So when we look at the ascension of Jesus Christ, we're focusing on Jesus as the Lord of all. I want to read Acts chapter 2, verse 36. And remember, this is in the early speech of Peter. The first sermon. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you, and that would include you and me, as well as the first century, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So what appeared to be an utter defeat on Good Friday... On Ascension Sunday, he reigns in power and on high. Now, this has enormous implications for the Christian church. It has enormous implications. The earliest creedal statement that Christians confessed happened to be constituted in three words. Jesus is Lord. Now, you don't have to know a lot of theology confess that Jesus is Lord. You might n not know, understand what the satisfaction theory of the atonement is. You may not know the word perichoresis as it is associated with the Trinity. You may not know whether you're a superlapsarian or a sublapsarian, but it doesn't make any difference. What really makes a Christian is your confession that Jesus is Lord. And if you can say that in the spirit, truly from your heart, Jesus is Lord. I want you to listen to what Romans chapter 9 says, or chapter 10, verses 9, 10, and I think 13. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, you are saved. Now think of that for a moment. I'll try to sharpen it even more. What is the one thing, if you can say, that you've, tra you've, you, you've, you've uh, passed over the threshold from darkness to light, from unbelief to faith? It has to be constituted in that confession. If you believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead and confessed by your mouth that he is Lord then you are saved. You might rhetorically ask yourself that question, have I done that? Can I truly say and confess that Jesus is Lord? Ask yourself that question. Is he Lord? Well, if he is, it has all the difference and will make all the difference in the world in your life. It makes all the difference for a number of reasons. The first thing it means is that nothing else is Lord, including you. Jesus is Lord. In Jesus' day, 
it had a lot to do with who was Lord. Was it Caesar or was it the Lord Jesus Christ? And what Christian said, Caesar is not the Lord. There is only one Lord. There are not many Lords. There's one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice how the apostle deals with this. As he begins to treat this, he says, his incomparably great power for us who believe, and we'll get back to the word power, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God has placed all things, all things under his feet and appointed him head, not only of the church, but of everything. Now, what this means is, if you look at verse 21, is that there's no power on earth or in heaven or under the earth that rivals Jesus. It's interesting the word powers here is not distinguished as to whether they're bad or good. Let's take them for a moment that they're bad powers, demons. Let's take it for a moment that it's sinful kingdoms on earth where tyrants rule and abuse the citizens. Let us take it in that realm. Is there anything that can challenge the lordship of Christ? Nothing. He reigns over all. Well, let's take these powers as being good powers. That would mean the angels in heaven. Are there any that rival him? Well, Satan found out differently, didn't he? There are none. There are none. He has a name or a title which is above every name. And he alone is Lord. And if you come to the conclusion where that is the way it is, and that is reality at its deepest level, it will change your life. That's why the confession Jesus is Lord is so important. If you believe that, we can teach you everything else. If you believe that, then we can instruct you in the way of righteousness, and you will go. Jesus is Lord. That's what the ascension means. That's what the ascension of means. It means then that death, for instance, is not the end. It wasn't the end for Jesus, was it? And so what that means is that your death is not the end. As a matter of fact, death will never defeat you. Romans chapter 8. It's interesting how much Paul emphasizes the ascension in a very subtle way. Death will never separate you from the love of God. We've had death in our midst. We've watched some of our most cherished loved ones, intimate persons in our church pass away. But that's not the end. If death had the last word, then Jesus would not be Lord. It doesn't. Well, you say, Pastor, I'm, I'm not so much worried about death, but I'm trying to struggle to live the Christian life. I fall down and, well, get back up. 
There's nothing in life that can separate you from the love of God. Life will not defeat you. It may knock you down, but it will not ultimately defeat you if you really believe that Jesus is Lord. You are not victim. You know, we live in an age and a place where everybody's a victim. Victimology is an industry in America. We've come to a sad state when that is the case. And I, I, if I were to quote some of the statistics, it would discourage you. If I were to quote how many people believe that they're entitled to something because they're some kind of victim. And we've got in our national life people lifting, living off of victimization and getting rich and gaining more power. I hope you understand that you are not a victim. There is a video that I wish I could show you of a man who has no arms and no legs. Maybe some of you have seen it. This, this man, maybe in his 30s, late 30s, lying on the ground, speaking to some young people. And he's a devout Christian. He's sharing Christ with him. I think he's from Australia. And he is able to wiggle up off the ground. And stand before them and tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the power of God at work in us. And when we say that Jesus is Lord, we are not victims of any power or thing or whatever. It's important to remember. You know, those cultures which make it and those cultures which have, if you will, a better life are those that don't see themselves as victims. Go into some third and fourth world countries where the spirits are alive and they're controlling and see what, it happens, what happens in the culture and life of those people. They're fearful. We're becoming the same way. When you cease to believe that Jesus is God and he is Lord... My friend, you are susceptible to everything and every belief and every superstition. It'll keep you sane. It'll keep you rooted in reality. Christ in his spirit is with us. Uh, as a young Christian, I, I was struggling in, in believing. I had uh, a professor in college who graduated from Fuller Theological Seminary in evangelical circles, but he'd become very liberal. And we were reading Eric from the art. What is it, the art of love? And Eric Fromm was attacking my newfound faith of a few weeks in reading the book, and so was the professor. And I happened to be driving in my red Corvair. <laughs> Brand new. I, I wrecked it a year later, totaled it. Driving in my Corvair. And I turned on the Back to the Bible broadcast. And I heard Theodore Epp quote this verse. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I'll tell you, it saved my life. Remember that. There's nothing in life that can separate you from the love of God. 
We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. That's what the ascension means when you confess Jesus is Lord. He's exalted above all powers. Jesus is Lord. You're not a victim. You're more than conquerors. Behave like it. Behave like it. Realize what you are in Christ. Nothing in this world. Now let me get to the third point. It seems disjointed, but it's not. You'll notice that the apostle ends up applying the ascension to the church and to the whole world. Now, that phrase, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way, is a difficult phrase, but I take it simply to mean at least this, that he is Lord of all. But before that, he says something that I want you to notice in verse 22. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him, that is Jesus, to be head over everything for the church. Now, you know that Jesus is the head and the church is the body. But I'm going to say some things here in this point that's going to trouble some of you. He's the head over all things pertaining to the church. The church is a divine institution. Now, if you read my introduction to the business meeting, you also see that it's a divine institution, it's incarnated. We partake of the same structures of ordinary society. We have business, we have financial matters to deal with. We have people relationships to deal with. We have to get the church cleaned. We have to get the church organ worked on. We have to have the piano tuned. All of these things that Anything that is in blood and flesh and concrete and real, we have to take care of in the ordinary manner. But the church is of a divine institution. What singles the church out is the fact that it is the only institution on earth that has been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The government's not entrusted with the gospel. It'd be a profanation if it were. Single individuals can preach the gospel, but they're not entirely trusted with it either. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a divine institution. It is absolutely a necessary institution. And the early church took these verses like this so seriously that they came up with the phrase, extra ecclesiam non salutis. Nice Latin phrase. What does that mean? Outside the church, there is no salvation. You say, Pastor, boy, that is going too far. But wait a minute. Well, I think it may go too far, let's look at the truth that it is pointing at. You can't ignore the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his body. And in one place it says Jesus died for the church. Now, my, my goal here is to exalt the church because its head is exalted and to contrast it with the modern spirit of the age. And by the way, there's a wonderful quote. She who is married to the spirit of the age will be a widow tomorrow. The spirit of the age tells you that the church is not important. I'm spiritual. I've had this said to me so many times, it almost, I'm going to do this the next time. 
I hear it. Pastor, I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, my, my religion, I'm spiritual. I, I, I don't belong to anything. I just, it's just too complicated. It's too much trouble to live with people. I can hardly live with myself, said someone. But that's your problem. You can't live with yourself until you're living in the church. It has a sanctifying effect in your relationships when you're under authority. It forces you to do things you wouldn't normally do. It forces you to make up and to get along when you don't want to. It forces you to live with people you don't like normally. You learn to like them. If you're just going to gather together with people who think just like you all the time and do everything just like you, well, you have no opposition. You're, you're greasing the skids for everywhere you want to go. We need to be challenged as to our life, our doctrine. And so the church is an important institution. Let me give you some reasons for the church and why Jesus is the head of the church and the church is a special institution of God. In the church, we truly are spiritually united with Christ. We are the body and he is the head. Notice how much Paul plays that up in 1 Corinthians, pertaining to the gifts. When one hurt, we all hurt. Let me say also this. Because we are joined with Christ, it means that his destiny is our destiny. Think of that. Whatever the destiny of Christ is, that's my destiny. If he died, I die. If he lives, I live. If he's exalted, one day I will be raised up and seated in the heavenly realms. And of course, every Lord's Day, I hope that's true too. The church is a trustee of the word. God has committed his word to faithful the faithful, together, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. I did my dissertation on a Southern Presbyterian by the name of James Henley Thornwell of South Carolina. He was called the second son of South Carolina, second to John Calhoun. Many in the North thought that he had the power and authority to stop the Civil War. He was even indicted by many Northerners because he didn't. There are two things that have left a lasting impression on me from him and studying him. Uh, two things that I, I, I can mention with, in, in ease. There are some other things too. Number one, when he prayed, he loved the phrase, he prayed to Jesus, the great head and king of the church. That phrase you'll uniquely find in Presbyterian circles, particularly Southern Presbyterian. Jesus, the great head and king of the church. And the second thing that's left an impression on me, he says the church is a missionary society. A vision and outreach. Now what the church is, it is to keep alive the gospel on the face of the earth. No other institution has been charged with this, remember. It is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Organized in the way that Christ organized it himself. Not just any association of Christians is the church. The church has the authority to 
preach the gospel in a unique way and to administer the sacraments and to exercise discipline. And Christ is head of that. Let me remind you that the church is the cradle of faith. It inculcates faith through its preaching and teaching to its young. And those young grow up and pass that on to the next generation, the next generation, the next generation. If you think that's not true, see how much faith is being passed around in the world. And then check out in the church. Yes, do we make everyone Christians or able to preach the gospel to them? They come to faith? No. But where do the Christians come from? They're not popping up there as wild daisies in the world. They're growing up in our midst in Christian homes and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's head of all things to the church. The church, you see, is a mother. And I'm back to my final point real quickly. Not a point, a close. Church is a mother. Calvin loved that phrase. The church is a mother. It's nurturing. It disciplines. It trains. It feeds. Does all those things. Mother's Day actually has its antecedents with uh, Anna Jarvis's mother and others. That's why she, back just after the Civil War, this country was in a mess. It had been preserved through warfare, but notice what happened. Unbelievable tragedy and casualties, particularly in the South. And Anna Jarvis's mothers and others said, well, let us do something. Maybe the mothers can help unite informally the North and the South. And they begin to form organizations in the churches, by the way, not in the state, of fellowship and encouragement. And so Anna Jarvis, in 1907, was recognizing her mother who died two years before, but she was actually recognizing her labor, which had been for 30 years, trying to unite. And I think it was pretty successful. My wife still may call the, the Civil War the war between the states, but she's able to live with all of us. She grew up in the South. Some of you have been to South Carolina and other states. You know how strong the feeling is. But we're pretty much all on the same page. Not because the government mandated it. Because the spirit of unity arose in the hearts, particularly of our mothers, to take care of the sick and the wounded and to bind up the brokenhearted. My friend, you can't live without the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're on a fool's errand if you think that's the case. Jesus is Lord. And lo look at that phrase again, and I close with it. He is Lord. Well, what's he Lord of, Pastor? Over everything for the church, which is his body. Now, I hope this Mother's Day you have a greater appreciation for that mother, which is the mother of us all, even the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is risen. 
He is risen indeed. He is on high. He comes again for his bride. Amen.